Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, your source for school-based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and professional development. Now, to get the conversation started, here is your host, Jason Davies. Class is officially in session. Hello there and welcome to the very first episode of 2022. I cannot believe that I am saying it, but welcome to 2022. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your early week or maybe second week, or maybe you're listening to this a lot later, but thank you for taking an opportunity to listen to this podcast. Today, we have on a very special guest who in the world of school-based occupational therapy, probably needs no introduction, but I'm going to give her one anyways. We have on the wonderful, the talented, the evidence-based Dr. Beverly Moskowitz of the Size Matters Handwriting Program and the RealOTSolutions.com website. I'm so excited to have Beverly on today. Many of you have probably seen her in the halls of the AOTA conference or maybe your state associations. She just has so much energy, so much passion for occupational therapy and also passion for the research behind occupational therapy. So I'm excited to have her on this day. We are not only going to talk about her Size Matters handwriting program and also a future endeavor that she is working on, but we're also going to have Beverly talk a little bit about her experiences as a school-based occupational therapist. She has been a school-based occupational therapist for several decades, and so she's kind of seen our our profession evolve over the years. Back when we didn't even really participate in IEPs, and IEPs were very unofficial to where we are today, where an IEP is the backbone of every single student that we see for the most part, unless we're doing 504s and RTIs or student study teams, SSTs and whatnot. So be sure to put that phone away, put it in your pocket, and just enjoy this episode. It is so much fun. This is actually a recording of a live episode that Beverly and I did together on on YouTube. And if you'd like to watch the video, the recording of the video that we did, you can do that at otschoolhouse.com forward slash episode 89. Or you can just continue to listen and you will get the audio version of that right here, right now. So stay tuned, enjoy the episode, and I'd like to welcome to the OT Schoolhouse podcast, Dr. Beverly Moskowitz. Enjoy the episode. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of the OT Schoolhouse podcast. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon and evening with us today. I am your host, Jason Davies, and if you are here, please just type into the chat. Let me know that you're here. Maybe type in there where you're from or if you're an occupational therapist or an occupational therapy assistant. It just helps us to, to feel a little bit more involved and engaged when we see that chat going on, and we really appreciate that. So if you can, take a moment to go ahead and let us know that you are on in the chat. We really appreciate that. Awesome. We have Andres here, from an occupational therapist from Illinois. Thank you so much for being here, Andres. Thank you for, for typing into the chat. I'm just making sure we've got everything set up, our questions. Thank you all. We already have 10 likes here. We have, I believe, around 20 people or so watching live. So we really appreciate you being here this evening, this afternoon with us. So we're actually going to go ahead and get started. We have a very special guest today. Her name is Dr. Beverly Moskowitz, and she is an OT, a doctor of occupational therapy. She is a fellow of the AOTA Association. She has done research. And as many of you probably know her, she is the creator 
of the Size Matters Handwriting Program and also the owner at realotsolutions.com. So I'm very excited to welcome to our show, Dr. Beverly Moskowitz. And there you see her right there. Before I dive in and say hello to Beverly real quickly, thank you, Tanya. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Debbie, Aaron. All of you showing up, really appreciate you being here. So let's go ahead and let's dive right into it. Welcome to the show, Dr. Beverly Moskowitz. How are you doing today? I'm great, and I'm excited to be here, too. I have to share with everybody, this is my first podcast, <laughs> so I'm a little nervous on my end, and I speak all the time, but honestly, when I'm in front of a camera or a microphone, sometimes it's like I don't even know English, so I hope that this is coherent and fun for you. I am excited to go forward. Absolutely, and as I mentioned, you know, this is this is very different. Usually, when we record a podcast, simply for the OT School Health podcast, we do it without an audience, but today we have a live audience, everyone here from all over the country, and uh, it's just, it's going to be an exciting show. If we have some time at the end, we'll do some Q&A, which will be even more fun. We don't usually get to do that on a podcast, an all-audio podcast, so yeah, I'm excited to, to get right into this. And you know, the first thing I wanted to ask you, actually, is about your early career and how you found your way into pediatrics and working as an occupational therapist with kids in schools. Well, first, I have to share, I'm doing this for 46 years. I can't even believe that much time went by. It goes by in a blink. So I graduated in the 70s. In the 70s, you could practice with a bachelor's degree. So I got a, a BS from the University of Pennsylvania, no longer even has a program anymore. And back then you had two rotations. You did adult rehab, you did uh, or rehab and psychiatry. If you wanted to do pediatrics, you had to do an extra three months. I always knew I wanted to work with kids. And so I chose to uh, pursue a third rotation. We called them internships back then. They're field work right now. But I always knew that I wanted to work in, in peds. Only this big to begin with. So I thought at least I'm not <laughs> bigger than the kids. That's funny. Yeah. And so what was your first job, actually? Did you end up directly into a school or were you in a clinic or what did that look like? Okay. So first of all, there weren't a whole bunch of jobs out there, uh, hospitals or uh, uh, children's uh, clinics. Their school practice wasn't a thing. So um, you really had to be creative if you want to work with kids. And ultimately, you had lots of little contracts. My first contract was in a residential facility. And, and no back, this is the 70s, that kids were kind of warehoused. And I, and I hate to say it, but that was a reality of life. If you had a severe disability, you were put into an institution. So I worked in an institution for a few months. I, I didn't love it. And then I got an opportunity to go to the St. Edmunds home for crippled children. And that's what they called it back then. They used that, that language because they wanted to get the, um, the donations mm. and the, the sympathy money. And they needed a department head. I'd only been working two months. I became the department head. I was a department of one. Uh, so, <laughs> so I worked at uh, St. Edmunds for two years. I will share with you, uh, my career just took off. The church was very generous in sending me to every single course that I ever got a, a flyer for. And I so encourage everybody, if there's new graduates out there amongst you, every time that you can read something, take a course, listen to a podcast. Apparently, they're educational. Uh, <laughs> do it. 
do it. I took everything out there and I really felt like my learning curve had been expedited. And then after that, I got involved with a consulting group. So again, back in the 70s, there was an institution called Penhurst that had all of these disabled adults and it had been decided that was inhumane. So different agencies were bringing these uh, disabled adults into the community in group homes. I became the coordinating consultant for, and I'm talking to you from Philadelphia right now, Philadelphia and the surrounding counties. I went to all of these group homes and created programs for the staff to do with the people that were living in these homes. And I traveled the entire city. I put a lot of mileage on. But again, in terms of could you work in pediatrics, you could work in related developmental disability fields. So I would do that for a few hours, but then I would also work in a preschool center. And then I would do a sheltered workshop and I would do some other residential facilities or home care. Like I worked 15 different contracts. I, I uh, When I started to work in schools, I was still juggling a whole bunch of contracts, but none of it was ever a full-time job. If you got a few hours in a school, that was that day, Tuesday mornings, I'm in this particular school district. Then I got one that was an hour and a half. Uh, I mean, a day and a half of work. So you you stitched all of your contracts together to make a living. Now, of course, schools have multiple therapists, but uh, I was the only one for around 15 different school districts. I visited more than 60 different schools, sometimes as many as seven in a day. Wow. Wow, that's a lot. That's a little wow. Yeah. And, you know, like you mentioned, now it's very different. Whether you work for a district in itself or even a contractor, you're primarily going to be in the schools. There are some contractors that will still have you maybe come back to the clinic in the afternoon or something like that. But for the most part, we kind of stick to either clinic-based or school-based, which is very different than what you were doing, where you'd have so many different contracts at a time. So yeah, that's pretty crazy. You mentioned that you had to go and get some training. At that point in your career, very early in your career, what was concerning to you or what did you feel like you needed to learn in order to do your job and, and what did you reach out for? So... um I learned a lot of stuff in school, but I wasn't really sure if I was being effective. I have always had a drive to know that my time was worth it. It was worth it to me and it was worth it to the person I was working with and I made a difference. So there was a lot uh, back then. We were not an evidence-based profession, but because I had this internal drive, I was always testing myself to see if I could make a difference. Was I being effective in school? Uh, was I being effective at home? Did people really enjoy the fact that I had been there? Did I make a difference there? Mm -hmm. So I was reading, I was learning, I was taking courses, I was trying everything. Out. You could play around a lot more. That that actually was kind of nice. Now, an evidence-based practice is definitely the way to go. But when we had no evidence, you were doing your own experimentation all the time. And I was always creative and always trying things out. And that's kind of how... <laughs> the handwriting program evolved because I was playing around back then. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you, it was it was more loosey goosey, and I and you had to be resourceful. We didn't have an internet, <laughs> you know. You had to go to conferences and and learn mm -hmm. from your colleagues. Yeah, and you mentioned how before we got on here, you actually just mentioned how you never had to do paperwork back then, and just how things have evolved. Yeah. Okay, so don't shoot me, anybody. This is um. 
What? So what was school-based OT like back in the, uh, well, I started working in schools in the late 80s, early 90s, and there was no requirement for paperwork. I'm not sure that IEPs had reared their head yet, but all note-taking was a little bit looser and nobody knew what I was doing. Now, I had been recruited. It was very interesting. My reputation as somebody that understood uh, why I was there, it was never supposed to be about me. It really is about everybody else. And listen, friends, it's hardly like I don't like attention. I'm standing in front of you podcasting right now. Uh, <laughs> But I know when I'm in a school, I'm really there to serve. I'm there to serve the teachers and the kids and the parents and make sure everyone gets along. So um, I knew that and I was recruited by the the district in which I lived, which was fantastic because my kids went there. And just the same, I wanted them to invite me back. So I created paperwork. I I created what I called a summary of service report at the end of the year. I wanted them to know everything I worked on so that they thought, you know, we should have that back. She does a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Now, of course, we're drowning in paperwork. But I didn't have to go to any meetings. We had um, no, there were no IEPs. Uh, there was no data collection. I will tell you, there was no security. So when I was covering all of those schools, mm. I could drive up to the back door, run in, do my little magic. Of course, I had no office, so I uh, had to do your magic in the hallway, <laughs> in the closet, literally in the closet, uh, on the <laughs> stage, the cafeteria. You had no budget. You were buying your own stuff. Teachers still buy their own stuff. Yeah. It's called an investment in your in yourself. Lots of changes, you know, that uh, o- over time. Yeah, some good and not some not so good. Right. And so do you remember when there was a large shift and when you really started to get invited to IEPs and they're starting to ask you maybe for progress on goals? I mean, does that even or did it just kind of gradually happen over time? So a little bit gradually. But yeah, there was a period of time where uh, this thing called the IEP reared its head and putting this in perspective, it it wasn't clear even to the administrators who were training us on how these things worked. They were always opening up their manuals to try and like get a little bit more clarity on, on what uh, OT service should be. And, you know, we were a line item related service was a line item uh, next to transportation. Hmm. <laughs> That's, you know, where they, they put uh, related services. So everybody was figuring out, but language started to, um, populate the day. Uh, FAPE, free and appropriate public education, was not always a thing. Mm -hmm. Least restrictive environment. So that was interesting. And I had really good intuitions. I I really felt way back when that you want me in the classroom. You don't want me pulling kids out. How how am I going to know what you need kids to do? How are you going to know what what I did if I can't show you? So from the very beginning, even before this collaborative model evolved, before least restrictive environment was more fleshed out as a, as a concept, uh, as a strategy, I was pushing into classrooms and I was learning from them. And that was something that later evolved, but it wasn't always the case. Now, I'll share with you also, there was a period of time, for better or for worse, that the teachers, the therapists, you wrote the what the treatment plan was going to be, the education plan. 
And uh, then during the 90s, I forget which president, which act it was, but parents got a lot more power. And that's a good thing. It actually is good that parents have a say and know that that wasn't always the case. There was a very long period that parents had to accept whatever their school said was the right thing, even if it meant shipping them off, their kids off to a different school, not their home schools. So that that happened where I was. And then when they started bringing home these kids into our home district, we had to figure out how we're going to accommodate them. So I saw a lot of changes, parents having a voice, bringing in advocates, lots of paperwork, those procedural safeguards. They didn't always used to be a thing. Okay. Now, like, yep. seriously, just recycle it. But yeah, a, lo- a lot of changes. At this point right now, I-, I do think the pendulum might have swung a little bit too far to the side of deferring to parents. And listen, I'm a parent too, but sometimes you want the professionals to weigh in and, and give you some guidance there. I observed a Facebook discussion today where an advocate had apparently vetoed all the OT's goals. I'm like, oh, I believe that's overstepping. So, okay, so it has to swing back a little bit. Yeah, and it's hard to find that balance, but you're right. It needs to be a team decision, not a parent decision, not an advocate decision, not an OT decision, a team decision. And so we all have to kind of agree. So, yeah, right there with you. All right, I do want to step into the present, but I have one more thing that I want to talk or ask you about how things have changed, and that's evaluations. How have you seen evaluations change over time? So um, I want to talk about evaluations and treatment. Okay. We really didn't have a big repertoire of avails back then. We had some developmentals and that's what we did. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a really good therapist. I have never cured somebody who has an intellectual disability. Yep. Okay. So I... I felt all along, why are you asking me to do developmental evals? The child's always going to not measure up, and yet they're so functional. And, and you really don't need OT services if the teacher can fully include them in all the activities and they're participatory. So that was back then. The evals, the evals have evolved. We have more criterion referenced. We still have standardized assessments. I get it. Uh, you need to have some kind of barometer so you can measure change. Not a big fan of a lot of standardized assessments. I'll be honest with you. They typically never speak to what I was working on. So I'm more a fan of what we call now performance-based assessments. I think that was a smart move in evaluations, moving away from a deficit-based evaluation process. I don't want to know all the things that kids can't do. I want to know what they can do. And if that's still problematic, that's where I'm starting. So that's been a lovely uh, evolution in our services, moving away from the deficit-based to what we call the strength-based assessment. In terms of uh, uh, treatment, pushing into the classrooms, I think, is, uh, is the right thing to do. Now, I've been in schools where they have these gorgeous OT departments. I was invited to one of those schools with a gorgeous OT department, and I said to them, So I think this is really mixed messaging. (laughs) Like, I don't think you want me to have a medical model. And when parents see this, they want that pullout service. Yep. You really want me to go into your classroom. And and, and in terms of all that stuff that you have that's in the cabinets that you allowed the previous OT to buy, that's lovely. Well, I don't think you want me using that either. Don't you want me using the stuff that's 
already in the classroom? Because isn't that the stuff that kids actually have to use during the course of the day? So I'm very practical, and my straight talk appealed to a lot of uh, administrators. As I said, my reputation as somebody who who got it was out there, and I never looked for a job. Districts always sought me out because they knew that I would do the right thing by by the district, by the kids, the teachers, and the parents. And that's interesting because, you know, we do have this clinic model, school model, and they kind of go back and forth. You really don't see the education model going into the clinic, but you do see the clinic model going into education a lot. And you're right. I've worked at districts where we do have a, maybe it's one clinic at one of the schools where more of the autism classrooms are based, or there might even be a few motor labs or whatever we might want to call them. And that does it's moving into the classrooms more. It's moving into the schools more, I should say. And so that's, that is a very interesting talk. And we have that talk a lot with all OTs that I talk to about, you know, what's clinic-based, what's educational-based. Should we be pulling kids out of a classroom to provide 30 minutes of some sort of sensory type of, of therapy? And I, as someone asked me earlier, like, is there research to back some sort of sensory in schools? And there really isn't. Most sensory research that's out there is three times a week for an hour for 10 weeks. I've never seen a school-based occupational therapist have three hours a week with a student. That just isn't going to happen. On the flip side, you're saying, well, that kid's now missing three hours of education every week. Who would agree to that? So also, uh, Jason, our charge when we go into schools is to promote function and participation. The research. And if you look up uh, Helen Politico, there's a whole bunch of other articles out there. Sensory integration. And I got certified way back in the 70s, the, the original Southern California sensory integration test. Yep. Uh, I got certified in all that. But the research on using sensory integration therapy has not shown that it facilitates function. That's a problem. That's what we're supposed to be doing in school. And you're going to tell me I'm doing all this swinging and it's not promoting that child's ability to actually work within the classroom? No, it's not. Does it impact the quality of life? Uh, that's, that's valuable. But when we're in school, we really have to get down to how can I give that child the movement experiences I read today in Facebook about how do I stop a child from tilting his chair back? Well, don't stop him from falling. Okay, that's bad. But um, think of a safer chair because the child's telling you he needs that movement. So yeah. that's the kind of sensory stuff that we can do in school. We should not be doing sensory integration therapy. Now, Lucy Jane Miller at the Star Institute is doing research on how to better measure the effectiveness of sensory treatment on function. Those are the, the things that we need to be measuring because when you administer those, those SIP tests and you go through all your fancy treatments mm-hmm. and re-administer those SIP tests, there's no significant difference. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, I know that's going to continue to go on and I know we need more research because there just hasn't, I don't think there's been a sensory based program that has been studied or researched using any sort of a school-based model. And until we get some sort of research where a sensory model can somehow be integrated into a school model, then I don't even think we can truly compare what could happen at a school versus what can happen in a clinic. 
There's a lot of research out there. We need more research in both sensory and... I always want to be respectful. Jean Ayers is, you know, she's like, whoa, brilliant. We are also indebted to the body of knowledge that she gave our profession. But as as I read today, hey, listen, Facebook is awesome. And I resisted Facebook. Um, okay, not as long as I resisted podcasting, but I resisted Facebook. And then I discovered these wonderful discussion groups that OTs are having on Facebook. So there was something about weighted vests today. And, uh, you know, how what's the, the protocol for a weighted vest? There is no research supporting weighted vests, weighted blankets. Now, that's not to say we haven't found the right variable to measure. Exactly. Because we all know how nice it feels to get a nice hug. You know, when our children are upset, how that is what they need. So we need to measure. There's some neurochemicals we have to kind of hook up with some lab and measure. There's something, but the evidence isn't there right now. It's not there with sensory integration treatment in terms of translating into function. So keep your eye on the ball when you're in school. You are a major problem solver looking for ways to promote function. Absolutely. Speaking of function, I think one thing that has evolved over the last 20 years is tiered intervention and RTI. And so I would love to know your experiences about RTI. Obviously, you've been talking about how you push into the classroom already. So how have you used RTI over the years? Uh, am I coming across pushy? I, because I guess I am. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> no, I say this jokingly. It always struck me as the right thing to do. So way back, even in the 90s, when they were having um, discussions about kids that were struggling, regular ed kids, I would inject myself into the conversation uh, because I would say, um, listen, it, it's such a better use of me now to help him, to help anybody than to then wait until he gets you know, you have to make a referral. Now you commit me to doing an evaluation. Now I've got to write, score a test and write a report and go to a meeting. Listen, if you let me come into your classrooms and speak with you now, and actually I bet there's a few other kids who I could help also, we can intercept these at-risk kids. I had this feeling way back when, before RTI ever became an acronym, that's the way I wanted to practice. And apparently I convinced enough people that that's how I built my practice and my reputation. I was somebody, I am not standing on ceremony. I'm going to help everybody. You can talk to me in the hallway. You can invite me into your classroom. Now we have, you know, more bureaucracy now, and I get that too, but I always was pushing limits to see how much I would be able to avoid having to get into a lot of red tape. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I said to my minister, here's what I want to do. Uh, I'm never going to lie. I'm never going to hide it from you. This is what I want to do. I want you to be okay with it. Uh And they would say, okay, sounds okay. So if that is something that sounds comfortable to you, if you feel like, you know what, I could see myself doing it, do it. Level with your administrators. I will share, I ran handwriting clubs. And we called them handwriting clubs. They just happened to be facilitated by the OT, but we didn't call them OT. Because if we called it OT, then we would have need to have a uh, referral. I don't want a referral because I don't want more paperwork. Listen, I'm just being honest with you. Yep. So we, we called it handwriting clubs. It's true. It's true. But I, but I ran it by the administrators. Here's what I want to do. And they said, sounds fantastic. And then all those at-risk regular ed kids 
who you know, if you just had a few sessions with them, you tweaked a few things, gave them some adapted writing paper, taught them the rules on letter signs. I'll I'll get to that. (laughs) Uh, You can make a difference. And so I was playing, I kind of played fast and loose. I was making my own rules up as we went along. There were, there were no really strict boundaries. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I will say that it is better to ask for forgiveness than permission sometimes. You know, you go into a classroom, you get something working with one teacher, that one teacher, it's amazing how three other teachers come and ask for your help because you kind of stuck your neck, your neck out there and, and got a group going with that one teacher. So I, I absolutely am I'm right on the same page with you when it comes to RTI. Absolutely. I think that should be our motto. let's do it all right so what have you found to be the most helpful when attempting to collaborate with teachers we obviously just kind of talked about how you collaborated with the principal but what about the teachers okay so um you got to be real you got to connect with them and you have to recognize they're professionals They went to school thinking, you know, whether they're new grads or they've been doing it for a really long time, that they would be teaching, not sitting in the hallway themselves collecting data all day. They have so many layers upon layers of mandates. Differentiated instruction is the right thing to do. Just the same, they are lesson planning four different groups for their classroom every single day. And and they have to, like, juggling. They're making sure that everybody is active. If you go into the classrooms and they perceive that you're about to give them more to do, (laughs) they're going to say, I'm good. Thanks. Okay. And believe it or not, I did that because I had so many ideas. (laughs) I had so many things I wanted to share. And they basically say, okay, thanks. You know, and they didn't (laughs) do anything. Okay. So yes, I have been known to overwhelm people, but I learned that the best use of my time is to listen to them. To, to recognize we are on their turf. It is not about you and me. And I said that earlier. It's, you know, listen, I'm getting plenty of attention right now. It really is. Have that mindset. When you are there to serve in school, you are on teacher turf. You have to learn what they need to cover. So have those real conversations with them. Tell me about your curriculum. How are you assessing learning? What's your homework look like? How do you set up your assignments, your room? May I play around? I've been known to feng shui a few rooms because I do that, uh, but I ask permission first. Um, <laughs> I, I do before I forgiveness because I, I am moving furniture, but I, I'll move furniture around. I'm going to bring things. I bring them gifts. It's a, it's, it's a joke. It's not like I'm buying them an outfit or anything, but I will adapt a test for them. Can I try my hand at your test? Because I saw their test. It's visually overwhelming. Maybe I could make it much more linear on adapted writing paper. Uh, could I move some desks around so that our, the child who, who really needs to be front and center, it doesn't have to crane his neck to see the board. I'm moving him away from the radiator because it makes a whole bunch of noise. Uh, that's a gift. You give a teacher. So if you want to have those connections with the teachers, let them know that, first of all, you come in peace. (laughs) I say that to them. I'm not a spy. I'm not here to judge. Right. Uh, I'm I'm here to help. How can I help you? Yeah, I want to learn from you. And honestly, that kind of attitude will go such a long way in getting those teachers to open up. 
the ones that are overwhelmed, they, they have a whole new curriculum, they're in a master's program, their kids are sick at home. Everybody has a life. They'll, they'll share that with you and you'll say, no worries. Would you like me to, to create that test for you or to work in this, in this center with you? They will be so grateful. So I don't know, being human. Yeah. You know, and some of my best experiences of school as a school-based OT comes from working with the teachers. You know, we have great experiences when we work directly with the students, but you get such a reward from working with the teachers as well. And also knowing that your knowledge to one teacher could potentially help 30 kids this year and then even more kids throughout the lifetime of that teacher once they understand something. So absolutely. So I want to dive into the Size Matters handwriting program that you so cleverly created, but I think this question might actually lead you there. I mentioned how I love working with teachers and that can be rewarding. What has been a super rewarding part of being a school-based OT for you? Wow. Well, what has been so rewarding? Uh, the connections, the connections with the uh, the teachers, the kids, to have people excited to see you in the hallway. I created a little gizmo. We called it the Fudget. There was a device that attached to it, uh, legs of a desk that kids would bounce on. Uh-huh. This was before the bouncy band. I had a, um, a model that I could, in 30 seconds, I had installed it. And the principal would say to me, Bev, I need six more in that room. And the teacher <laughs> went on every desk in the classroom and the kids would stop me in the hall and say, can I have one of those things? And I'm like, who are you? I don't even know these kids. But I love that they recognize that I brought something into the classroom and they wanted it. I love that the teachers sought me out. They really, um, they wanted my opinion that I, I had said something, done something that, that stayed with them. And so that feels really good. And there's one story I wanted to share, and I'm sure you all have stories like this right now, but how did I know that I was on the right track? How did I know this inclusion part was going to be working? Very early in the beginning, in the late 80s, early 90s, a parent knew her right. She was having her severely cognitively impaired daughter in regular kindergarten. Cutest little thing, but she had Angelman's. Anyone have angel have a student with Angelman's? You're, you're pretty mm-hmm. impaired. But those children were lovely to her daughter. And I sat in a meeting where this parent said for the very first time, she got to go to a birthday party. Her daughter was invited to a birthday party. And she was able to sit with the adults because the kids played with her daughter. And if I tell you that story is like 40 years old now, it still makes me cry. That's the right. We're doing the right thing. It's the right thing to do. Wow. Yeah, I've had a pair of uh, brothers with Angelmans, and you're right, very, they need a lot of support. And so that's, that's so kind that some other students, some other kids were able to come in and support. You know, I think as it takes a certain type of person to be an occupational therapist, to be an educator, to be anyone that's going to come in and work with kids, especially kids with disabilities. And I think all of us as occupational therapists working in those schools we kind of have that heart that it that it requires. You know, the special education teachers have it too. And that's so But we want our kids, whether they ever grow up to be teachers or OTs, we want our kids to grow up to be kind. Yes. To be able to see somebody with a disability and not be afraid of them, to to include them, to talk to them. Absolutely. You make you make such a difference to that parent. Maybe the child doesn't even know, but that parent is most grateful. Absolutely. All right. Well, 
I know a lot of people know you for the Size Matters handwriting program. This program has helped thousands, if not more, tons of thousands of kids and adults around the world to understand. So I want to ask you, starting, what is the Size Matters handwriting program? So as I said to you, I um, way back when, you could play around a lot. And I was getting all these handwriting referrals and doing everything I had ever learned should be impactful. I'm working on all my core strength, my in-hand manipulation skills, perceptual skills, because I had done those assessments and the kids did really poorly, and using the prevailing handwriting program out there. And I'm not making a difference. I'm not, nobody is any better. They're still printing the same way. This is probably like 25 years ago. I started to play around with variables I thought might have more impact. And that's when I discovered that when I focused on letter size, the kids caught on really quickly to that. That was really, you know, touching here, touching here. And what started to happen, if you ever have taken my course, I tell this story, the special ed kids became the neatest printers in the school. And, and, and you know, because everybody's hanging their work in the hallway and I'd go by my classrooms and it looked so beautiful. And the regular classrooms were horrible. So I asked a first grade teacher friend, could I try something in her classroom? I wondered if these these ideas would translate. And I gave a 20 minute, half hour lesson in her room, first grade. That's it. Mm -hmm. Later in the day, she flags me down, Bev, you walked out of the room and everybody's printing changed. One parent later in the week, she said to me, um, the the teacher uh, caught up with me and said, a parent called to confess that she scolded her daughter for being so irresponsible, bringing home somebody else's assignment book. Hmm. I was there once. So I had the sense that I, uh, I think I'm onto something. And I started to develop it and play with it a little bit. And then I went back to school for my doctorate. And I wanted to know what everybody is doing about handwriting in the country and in, in the world. So you, you're welcome to read my doctoral work. And I stayed connected with Temple University because I wanted to test my premises. And that's when uh, we did, and I'll, I'll get into the research we uh, designed the largest research study ever done on handwriting, and my methods were proven effective. Uh, change scores were significant at a 0.001 level. That is massive. Yep. yep, absolutely. Actually, go ahead and explain that research a little bit. How was that put together? We had Beth Pfeiffer on the podcast not too long ago, and she talked about the program. Is this that research, or was it a different research? So, so Beth, Beth. Beth Pfeiffer, everybody, check her out. She is beyond awesome. Uh, She's faculty at Temple University in Philadelphia. So uh, after I finished my doctoral program, I did stay connected with Temple. And I said to them, if you ever have any students looking for a study, bring it on. (laughs) Two years later, two doctoral candidates came forward. And in what turned out to be this first study, now at this point, I was traveling around the country teaching. And I would always say, if you're interested in being a site for research, let me know. We had around six, seven, eight therapists say, yeah, I want Mm -hmm. to participate. Let me share with you, when you read the literature and you see the size of a study, be impressed. It doesn't matter how small, definitely if it's big, you have to jump through such hoops to get to that point where your school is approved for participating in research study. You got to write the IRB, which if you've done that, it's a pretty lengthy thing. By the time we finally were ready to launch, 
the eight schools dwindled to six to five. Ultimately, we had two school districts. That said, three grades, kindergarten, first and second, control and intervention in both grades, over 200 students, three different standardized or criterion referenced assessments. We had to, uh, our scorers, we had 15 scorers in in, uh, six different states because there were 1,800 assessments to score and they had to sit through training videos and score a sample and earn a reliability coefficient, a 0.80 to qualify. All of that, I wrote, in case anybody ever wants to replicate my study, a fidelity manual. So exactly what was happening on day 15 in first grade in Massachusetts was happening in day 15 in first grade in New York and so on. It was an eight-week study. They did it every day. And, And again, be impressed when research makes it into literature. These people worked hard. I needed to get in and I needed to get out because you're interrupting school. Mm -hmm. So it was a very brief period of time. That study was, Beth was the lead investigator on it. Tammy Murray and Jillian Ray were also part of that study. That got published in the OT Journal of Research in 2015. The second study was the one that you you interrupted, Cheryl Zilstra. Cheryl was a, a doctoral candidate at Temple, and she did the second study with Beth Pfeiffer again. Hers was smaller, but they correlated handwriting also with reading. So again, I'm reading Facebook. You might think that's my, it's like Wikipedia. Beth reads <laughs> Facebook. I don't know. Is that a horrible thing? I <laughs> but but I, I want to see what people are talking about. So yeah, there was this advocate who wants technology, no handwriting. And I said, well, do they want the kids to learn how to read? Because uh, handwriting supports reading. Technology does not. Problem solving, creativity. So like, anyway, Cheryl's study showed a very strong correlation between handwriting and letter sound and letter name recognition. That was that study. We had another study. Oh, Anne Lee. Anne Lee. Oh, gosh, Anne, I hope that you're watching. She wanted to look at the self-monitoring component that we're very proud of. One of the unique features of Size Matters is that kids can score themselves. If they want to score each other, they can score each other, do some peer monitoring. There is evidence on the benefit of giving kids that power. Mm. So uh, she wanted to... to see whether they're, you know, how powerful that is. So she looked at uh, second graders and uh, wanted to ascertain the the benefit of the self-monitoring. They, they roll dice to determine practice. How silly is that? But we got to defer to it. They roll a, a five. They got to make five star worthy. Yep. And if they roll one, they only have to make one, but it better be star worthy or you're making another one. The kids love that. And next thing you know, kids are like, Give me a six. And you to, <laughs> wait, you know how this game works, right? They love the power. They love the power. So there's the buy-in. We had another study. This was thrilling. This was at a University of Wisconsin-Madison. I didn't even know it was happening until I saw it published in Age Out. I do read my Age Outs. They did a comparison of effect sizes of nine different handwriting programs. Some of those that, that may be I saw that one. among your your favorites. And they concluded when it came to legibility, size matters, 
is best. Now, they did conclude we're not as good for speed. 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 I was going to ask you about that. What's your reasoning on that? And do you think it's a problem? So that was funny. In that very first research study, the kids did measurably slower. The intervention group kids were measurably slower when it came to writing. That said, the site managers in both locations said to me, that was so funny. When it came time for the post-testing, the kids were so careful to touch their pencil to the writing lines in all the right places that they were slower. Listen, we're looking for a longitudinal study. Anybody out there want to do that? We believe it's going to be now. Yeah. Yeah. So this was only an eight-week study. If we had a semester, a year, I think you're going to see it even out. But okay, you have to report. That's what happened. Yeah. And here's my response. If the kids are writing fast, but you can't read it, who cares? Yeah. And and to to that point, what is one of the main things I think teachers say in a classroom to their kids? Slow down. Whether a kid's running across the room or if they're going through math problems too fast, if they're writing too fast. I mean, to your point, everything we need to slow down in a lot of times for kids, you know, reading too. They're not going to comprehend what they're reading if they're going through it at the pace of a jackrabbit. They need to slow down. And the same thing with writing and everything else. I agree. In the beginning, let's get it right. And as as you develop that automaticity, yeah, the speed's going to come. Absolutely. All right. What are the main cornerstones that you would say the Size Matters handwriting program is based off of? Obviously size, it's in the name, but are there one, two, maybe even three other like cornerstone blocks of information that you really focus on? So yeah, letter size is the biggie, but Size Matters is very responsive to the realities in school. You have to empower kids. These kids, first of all, If the kids have been on your caseload for a a while, a few years, they're not happy about it. They want to, you know, there's something about always having to go to therapy that makes them feel like there's something very wrong with them. We we don't want that messaging. This program works quickly. It's amazing if you're not using Size Matters yet. I'm going to suggest it is in your future because I do believe it's the future because it works so easily. Once you correct errors in letter size, that's what makes an immediate difference in the consistency and therefore the readability of the page. And it is so easy to teach because there are only three sizes in manuscript. So I can't undervalue that. When you look at form and every other program is focusing on form, there are 62 of those. Your uppercase, your lowercase, your numbers. And individually, if you looked at your kid's writing letter by letter, you could figure out what those letters are. It's in the context of the whole that it's a mess. And that's how you know it's not about form. It's also not about a workbook. So Size Matters is a concept-driven approach. I, I, I often say that you can get started right away with your knowledge alone. You don't need any material. Now, we have material. The material can make it faster, make it easier to use. But if you don't have anything... You can get started just by teaching the concepts. That makes it affordable for all those districts that have budgetary issues and who doesn't. You can get started right away just using your concepts. I also share with you stuff that you can make. That's the kind of therapist I am. I mean, we have stuff that's beautiful and you know nicely finished, but I didn't have stuff when I was figuring this out. I made stuff. And I'm going to share with you how you can make your make stuff too to share 
in your classrooms. It's embeddable across the curriculum. That's another thing that no other program can say, because it's not about two 15 minutes of practice in a workbook a week. That's not going to get you anywhere. You have to have concepts and strategies that are that remind kids to think handwriting, letter size during science, social studies. They're writing word problems in math. Mm-hmm. And it can be as simple as just having the teacher walk around with dice. When the kids hear the dice, their ears perk up because they know at any moment the teacher could stop by and say, tell me about that letter. Is it, is it star worthy? <laughs> so on so many ways, it is a realistic program. And I'm not done with the research. Uh, we just finished a study up in Florida that was lovely. Um, they're pursuing publication there. That talked about how teachers feel about uh, bringing size matters into their classroom, what the perception is. Uh, we had another study that finished in, um, I want to say, Norristown, Pennsylvania, with kids on the spectrum. Uh, we have another study. Listen, there's more and more, stu- and I just say, bring it on. I am determined <laughs> to be the most heavily researched program out there. That's how confident we are. That's great. how well it works. That's great. We need we need more research in the field of occupational therapy. So yes, go for it as much as as much as you can. So you go around the world, or at least around. You talked about you might be going around the world soon, but you definitely go around the country and and teach others. What is your hope for the occupational therapist sitting in the middle desk at the third row of your training? What is your hope that they're going to go back to their school and do? I want them to get excited. I'm, as I said, uh, I'm doing this a long time, 46 years, and I'm still excited. I am awed when I go to conferences, and, and I hope that all of you join your state organization, join AOTA, go to conferences. Our profession continues to evolve. We're so very grounded in the way we approach situations. I said to somebody today, I don't think there's ever a problem that an OT can't solve. We just haven't figured it out yet, but give it to an OT because we are so creative. There's so many different avenues to go in there. So I want the therapists coming to my conferences to feel my energy, to feel excited about this awesome profession that you have spent a lot of time and money becoming a part of. The possibilities are endless, but do protect this wonderful profession because there are people, professions, I should say, who are... Uh, jumping on the bandwagon. And uh, we kind of have taken our eye off of the ball by not joining our state organizations. People say, I don't have to, so I'm going to save the dues. Listen, I call it the cost of doing business. Recreation therapists are doing uh, ADLs. They uh, are doing handwriting. They're doing, um, you know, they say they own recreation. Actually, recreation was always part of an OT, so no. PTs are being more functional. They're recognizing that just standing or walking is not nearly as important as when you have to put your book bag in the locker. So they're being more function oriented. And the ABA therapists, don't get me started. They have somehow moved to the front of the the desk, the conference table, and they're telling us how to practice. And they are not science-based. They're not evidence-based. How did that happen? Well, how it happened is that OTs stopped representing And when you see a practice infringement and you want to nip it in the bud, the lobbyists, the legislators in your state say, well, how many people in your state are you representing? How many people feel that way? And the sad fact is 
that only around 10% of practicing OTs are members of their state organization. So they say, well, how do we know that the other 90% think this is important? That's a point. By contrast, recreation therapists, uh, 90% of those practicing are members of their state organization. Oh, my gosh. They took language word for word from the OT practice framework here in Pennsylvania and dropped it into their licensure bill. And amazingly, there was somebody on Capitol Hill in Harrisburg, capital of Pennsylvania, little fact, who caught it and said, you can't say that. That's what OTs do. It is happening in your state. So listen, you don't have to be politically active unless you want to be, but you must pay your dues to protect your future. Yeah. And then go to conference, be awed by the many ways that your colleagues have taken this body of knowledge and are applying it. That's thrilling. Absolutely. All right. Great. Well, I want to leave a little bit of time for some Q&A because we do have about 50 to 60 people here with us tonight. But I do want to give you an opportunity to kind of transition because you're working on a new project. Obviously, you have the manuscript Size Matters handwriting program um, that works all on uppercase, lowercase manuscript. But I think you're working on something in the future, right? Go ahead and explain that. So thanks, uh, Jason. This is a labor of love. For years, people have asked me for a Spanish edition, a cursive edition. First of all, I don't speak Spanish, so that was a big stumbling block right there. I didn't even know how I would attempt that. And in terms of cursive, I wasn't inspired. I didn't know how I was going to make my approach different, better than anybody else's. And then two summers ago, when the country looked like, like, what happened? You know, we're like, can't we all just get along? I got it. I got my inspiration. Unlike the manuscript book, which is, there's only one workbook, and it practices a single letter at a time. Teachers are instructed, open up your literacy, social studies, pluck out words that are meaningful to your curriculum. That's what you want to write. Unlike manuscript, cursive is all about the connectedness. So I actually needed to identify words for kids to be writing. And I, the words I chose to use were words of kindness, participation, inclusion, disability, awareness, things that I think are so sorely missing nowadays. What happened to civility and us learning how to have a you know, polite discourse? So I have an advisory board and we have built on the size matters principles. There's now a size four letter. Uh, there's lots of motor learning opportunities where you practice making the movements of the letters. And then there's narratives. And the narratives are uh, written at grade level, second, third grade, all these themes of acceptance and awareness and kindness with discussion questions. The words that the kids practice writing are extracted from the narrative. So they're a little contrived because I'm always trying to use the featured letter of the page on it. But the kids practice writing words that are meaningful, reading words, and having these lovely discussions about how they might include somebody who... Let's just make it simple. Suppose your arm is in a cast. How are you going to write? So it doesn't have to always be heavy handed, but it gets the kids thinking about the challenges that are out there. So that's part of the beauty of this book. I will share too, it's illustrated by children. Beyond proud of that, my own son did illustrate the cover. So it's dedicated to him. And I can just be a little bit 
personal here. He has a traumatic brain injury. So um, he qualifies to, <laughs> to participate as an artist in this book. But all of the children are exceptional and the artwork is exciting. And I'm so, so honored at the opportunity to celebrate these talented children. And then that's not all. That's the lowercase pages. I wanted to be authentic when it came to the uppercase pages. And to be authentic, you want to have a proper noun, which is a person, place, or a thing. I chose places because these are themes that are relevant every place, everywhere in the world. And so the uppercase pages actually have maps. Different parts of the U.S., different parts of the world. Europe and Africa and Russia and China and Southeast Asia. And honest to goodness, I think this book is going to be a keeper because you're going to love it. You're going to, I'm planning a vacation. I had a, like, where are the Philippines? <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow, I got a book that has a map of them. It's a beautiful book. We have been working uh, a year and a half, my advisory board, and I had a seven-hour meeting last Friday because wow. they are so dedicated to this book. I believe that you'll you'll love it. You will keep it. You'll treasure it. And your kids are going to learn how to write in cursive and how to be part of a kinder, more humane society. I love that because I think as occupational therapists, sometimes we forget that, especially in the schools, that we're part of the education. And the idea that you're putting that geography in there and you're using principles from curriculum and you're, and you're throwing that in there, that's so important. So um, I think that's fantastic. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Well, there's one more thing that the teacher amongst us suggested that we have additional STEM activities, which has now been expanded to STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Mm -hmm. So for those teachers that want to build curriculum, there's a whole bunch of ways to expand on the lessons here, things to learn about. For instance, the A page uh, talks about uh, accommodations and, and adaptations And I think we talk about Temple Grandin under the STEAM pages. Google her, we tell the kids. Pretty, pretty fascinating lady. So much learning in this book. I'm just so, as I said, so so proud. This is a labor of love. I hope that you are interested in seeing it. Absolutely. And, you know, some people are already talking about just about the Size Matters handwriting program. So I'm going to actually bring up our first question from Jennifer. I can bring that right up here on the screen for us. And it says, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. If I would like to start the size matters in my schools, where should I start? So Jennifer, there's a few ways to get started. You want to learn more about it. And to learn, we have a, um, so my website is called realotsolutions.com. You can take the three-part self-study webinar series. I am an approved provider of continuing it through AOTA. So you earn 0.7 CEUs, that's a self-study, or teaching a two-day live course in February on East Coast time. I should probably know those dates and I don't, but depending on where you are, you could do that. In April, I'm teaching a two-day course on West Coast time. Two days, the day one is the intro course. It's comparable to the webinar series. If you take the webinar, you can just take day two. Day two is a therapist certification course. If you would like to be certified as an SMHP therapist, uh, you want to take the day two course. And I send you, I send you a gift. (laughs) I'm going to send you your handbooks, your lab materials, uh, scoring kits, a few little extra goodies in there, free SMHP materials. So that would be a good way to start and educate yourself. 
if you want to uh, get a proposal for your school, I'd be honored. I'm happy to craft a proposal. I always say, this is the beginning of a conversation. I want to learn more about you. Whenever schools, districts adopt size matters, they get a free hour of me. I'm going to do training on the use of the materials. If you want a CEU course, I'm happy to bring that also to you. But I always want to learn, what is your budget? What I don't want to tell you to get something. If you can't afford this, don't get it. We'll make it. We'll make something that's going to be okay. Maybe next year you'll buy the uh, the MRB, the Magnetic Rectus Square Board. But in the meantime, Magnetic Rectus Square Board, it's a big white board that has lines on a pink, yellow, blue marker. It's very cute. Or you could make lines on your board and use pink, yellow, and blue dry erasers. That's wonderful. Anyway, so I'm going to share with you how you can get started, whether you want a proposal, whether you want to pilot it. Another option, pilot studies. I can help you design one of those. I always suggest um, ask. Ask your administrators if that's okay. Ask parents, too, if they're okay. Teachers, you want to control in a treatment so you can see the differences and take pictures before and after because a picture is worth 10,000 words. I promise you, you're going to say, as I still say, wait, that was the beginning of the session, the end of the same session. Wow. Yep. All right. This next question kind of leads into where I think you're going anyway. So what are some of your methods for providing push-in services with the Size Matters program? Would you provide instruction to the entire class? Yeah. Yeah. And I, so how would you pilot that? Or how would you pilot that then for the administrator to see? So so pilot studies can be as detailed as you want or as long as you want or as short as you want. We've done four-week pilot studies, three-month pilot studies, full-year pilot studies. So first, it's going to start with a conversation of what do you envision? What permissions do you need? Parent, administrators, and how many classes do you want? How many you know grades per classroom do you want? So let's flesh all that out. We talk about what the training is going to be. And I like to empower you, so I want you to be trained. And you, you get me. You get to talk to me. I'm happy to talk to you. I'm so shy. I know. It's going to be hard. I'm going to support you, make sure that you feel like you know how to launch it. So you want to get collect some baseline samples which could be as simple as the kids writing the alphabet and a grade level sentence. Date it, initial it. So maybe, you know, we keep it a little bit blind. We, we don't want to, or you number it so you really don't know who the child is. And then at the end of whatever interval you decide you want that pilot period to be, that child's going to write the alphabet, upper and lowercase, and that same grade level sentence, and you're going to compare it. I always suggest... Buy one of those flip books like at Staples Office Depot mm. that have those proposal sheets in it and you assemble it. When you present that to your administrators, I promise you they're going to go, what? They will. Yeah, I've seen it happen. I've done something similar. And sure enough, the next year, the principal set aside money in their budget to get a handwriting program. And so definitely it does. it does work. I wanted to go a little bit further on Caitlin's question. She asked about doing this in the classroom. I want to be ask you a question that I, I don't know. Everyone's a little bit different. What does it require of you to do with the teacher? Do you think that we can just walk in and do this on our own? Or do we need to plan with the teacher ahead of time, collaborate a little bit before we go in and do an entire classroom program? Well, you always want to collaborate with teachers because I'll go back to you know where I said we're on their turf. Uh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a guest. I'm there to support you. I certainly don't want to be 
pushy. So I'm first going to ask, may I come in? Would you like a pilot study? Would you be receptive to it? And you might have teachers say to you, yes, not this year. I'm overwhelmed. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Whatever is going on in their life. And they love you. So first get, you know, have that relationship, that rapport building. Wasn't that like OT 101? <laughs> Establish rapport. You want to have that rapport and you want to ask the teachers, what would be a good time to come in? They may say, I am, we are so far behind in our math curriculum that I need to add extra time on that. So listen, life, <laughs> find out when that block of time is and ask for some regularity. So if this is the block of time, can I come in every day? Mm-hmm. Can I come in three days a week? Do I have 20 minutes? You can get a lot done in 20 minutes if you're organized. So there's lots of questions to ask and answer before you launch a pilot study. And that said, I tell you this from experience, how do therapists love, love, love science matters, babe? I want to do a research study and my administrators, my, everybody's ready to go. And I'm like, I think that this is going a little bit too fast, but she was so enthusiastic. The bottom line was we didn't ask enough questions. And when the study was finishing, it was the end of the school year. And it was field day. Well, who wanted to be in class doing a uh, post-test when it was field day? And even when they sat there, they were really distracted. So we didn't realize there was going to be a vacation overlapping the, the time here. Ultimately, all that hard work ended up not being a good study. So, Yeah, we always got to look at the calendar. <laughs> all right. We'll do one last question. This is kind of a question about your course. You already explained this a little bit, but just a little confusion on the difference between the three-part self-study and the two-day course. Ah, Okay. So if you want to become a certified SMHP therapist, that's an intermediate level course. You have to take a qualifying prerequisite, an intro course, to be eligible for the certification course. Now, if you followed me at all, you may know that I have taught hour-long courses on OT.com, a marvelous site. Those do not count as qualifying prerequisites. Look at them as like a little preview, a little supplement to what you're learning, but it's not sufficient in itself. Still, definitely, you know, take them. You get a CEU if you want to do that. The three-part self-study and the day one course essentially have the same content. Here's the difference. The self-study, the (laughs) self-study. You're facing. You're pacing yourself. You get to back up if you want to listen to me again. You can watch it at two in the morning if that's the only time that you're free. You do have to take a post test. As I said, I am an AOTA approved provider. And when you do distance education, there has to be proof that you that you paid attention, that you took the course, you didn't just go to the movies. So each of the, there's three different post tests that you have to take. I send you the links to the slideshow, the handout, the post-test link, and the course evaluation link, you have to download the handout. I talk about the lab materials. You don't actually do them. In the live course, (laughs) it's me in real time. I'm going to send you the handbooks. I'm going to send you the lab materials because I believe in uh, fun. So we're going to have fun together doing center time activity. Uh, you get to ask questions in real time. 
the day one course is six hours versus the three-part webinar, which is seven hours. So there's a supplemental course if you want that extra stuff that I just couldn't have you sitting there for seven hours. I can't sit there for seven hours either. <laughs> um, so there's a little less content, but essentially the same content in the day one course as the self-study. Now, we do the lab materials in the day one course, which we use the next day during the certification course. So it's fun because you get to play the games. There's a lot of games that you play in certification. If you took the, the self-study, you can still play the games. I'm going to let you play. You're just not going to have the materials to submit one of your samples, but you're certainly welcome. A little bit of a budgetary issue, a uh, difference too. So you get to decide, this this works for my budget, this works for my time. And if you can't take two days off in a row, I'm going to tell you, take the self-study and then just join me for the live course. There you go. Good like idea. Certification. All right. Well, Dr. Beverly Moskowitz, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. We've been going on for about an hour, almost an hour and 15 minutes. We've had 50 to 60 people here consistently just loving what you're saying. Thank you everyone who has joined us this afternoon. Really appreciate you being here. And I look forward to uh, staying in touch with you, Beverly, and maybe taking that course alongside some of the people that are here today. So maybe we'll that make that happen. Awesome. <laughs> oh, I love that. Listen, I, this has been hard for me to read the chat and like, look at you all. So <laughs> I to see that, but I am you inform me, and I would be honored if you wanted to write to me, bev at realotsolutions.com. I would love to problem solve with you. Certainly, if it's size matters, I'm thrilled about that. But it could be anything in school-based practice. So please don't hesitate. I always hope that above all, that people feel connected. Sometimes we are so isolated out there, and I want people to know that I am uh, it would be my pleasure. You honor me by reaching out and allowing me to learn about your life and your practice. Absolutely. Everyone take that and use it because it's very amazing to be able to collaborate with another therapist just to get a little bit even. Really appreciate you offering your assistance there. So thank you, Beverly. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Really appreciate you. And we'll see you next time on the OT Schoolhouse podcast. Take care. Bye. Bye, everyone. All right. That was such a fun episode. I'm excited for that one. I'm excited to keep in touch with Dr. Moskowitz. She just has so much going on. Her passion for occupational therapy is off the charts. I love everything that she has to say, and I'm excited to keep in touch with her. Maybe we'll have her back on the podcast again in the future. Thank you. Huge shout out to Beverly for coming on, taking the time to do this for us. And I really appreciate you for being here, whether this was your commute, your workout, your ADLs for the day, just listening to a podcast, whatever it might have been. Thank you so much for being here. And I will see you again on the very next episode of the OT Schoolhouse podcast. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to OTSchoolhouse.com. Until next time, class is dismissed. <laughs>